Leaving a legacy, Parkland marks the second anniversary of the Stoneman Douglas massacre. What has changed, what hasn't, what should change? We'll ask the families. If there was a Fidel Castro highway, would we say to the Cuban community, get over it? Road rage. Is Dixie Highway's name historic or racist? Moves are underway to change it, and those involved are here to make the case. This victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. Feeling the burn, the Vermont senator is on an early roll. Will Florida voters support a Democratic Socialist? We'll take that question to the roundtable. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney, and I'm glad my partner Glenna is back. <laughs> ah, thank you, good to be back, good to be warm. I'm Glenna Milberg. We have a packed hour ahead, but we begin with the change makers, the families of those murdered at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High two years ago Friday, turned profound grief and rage into action, became policymakers, moved lawmakers, fueled changes, are fueling changes in school safety. Yet two years on, the fight is still fresh. Two of the families are with us this morning. Debbie Hickson, her husband Chris, was the athletic director at Douglas High. He died a hero trying to save students from the shooter. She is now a candidate for the Broward County School Board. And Ryan Petty lost his daughter, Elena, that day. He was instrumental in getting state gun safety laws changed. He has just been appointed to the governor, uh, by the governor, to the State Board of Education. Good morning. So glad you guys could Great come in. Great to have in. you back. Thank we you. really appreciate it. Uh, if we could, tell us about the meeting you had this week with President Trump, because you both have been advocates for uh, safer schools. And Debbie, tell us, what was that meeting like? What did he tell you? Were you encouraged by it? Um, I think what happened on Monday was a good thing, right? Uh, schoolsafety.gov is a website. It's a clearinghouse that the government put together so that schools across the country could go to one place, one-stop shopping is what Max likes to call it. Mm -hmm. um, where Max Schachter, we should Max say. Max Schachner, right. 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 He was the driving force absolutely behind mm -hmm. um, them doing this. And it was four different departments of government that came together to, to make sure that people can make their school safe and doesn't matter where you live, because it's not a one size fits all. Everybody has different things. So they can go figure out what they're missing, what they might need, and then look for vendors that can give them what will make their school safer. You know, it's so, sitting here, Monday, you were in the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. Two years on, you're with the President of the United States. You've been to the Capitol in Tallahassee. Ryan, what? What do you make of what you all have been able to do that no one, no one else has ever? Well, I, you know, I, I guess it's the, the nature of the tragedy, losing 17 in a school um, where everyone should be safe, children, the staff, the teachers. Um, I think it really shocked the conscience of the nation and it's had a profound impact on lawmakers. And I think that's given us an opportunity to sit down with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, bring them together, find the things that we can agree on and move forward. We've said from the beginning, we're gonna find commonality and we're gonna move forward with those things. It won't be perfect, but we'll make progress. And we didn't want the memory of our loved ones to be in vain by not making any progress. Yeah. Well, yeah. after Newtown, Connecticut, 
there was that same huge sense of grief in this country, and certainly in Connecticut, state of Connecticut, mm -hmm. passed some laws. But you have been able to do more, I think, you and the uh, Never Again uh, movement, all those kids going out, speaking, holding rallies. I mean, it's just been extraordinary. Yeah, I, I think that the students being able to articulate how they felt and to start that movement, and then we kind of have followed along and continued with it. And, you know, it was a little different. So it was high school students, mm -hmm. and they... And articulate, smart, right, uh, absolutely. effective. And in Newtown, those were... Um, you know, mostly parents. There were also adults that were, were murdered that day. But I think you get really lost in the grief and, and it takes you a while to find your way out. And what's different about Parkland is those students were able to immediately make an impact. And then that allowed us to continue those conversations with different legislators. You know, you, you bring up that, that immediacy. I want to sort of explore that for a moment because in, it was a literally one month after it happened when you were in Tallahassee they were passing laws that that legislature had never passed before mm -hmm. raising the uh, age limit to buy weapons etc now two years later that immediacy is gone for not for you but for you know general public and just a couple of months ago comes this grand jury report that all of these changes that are being made and all of these laws that have been implemented and this grand jury report ordered by Governor Ron DeSantis just slammed some school districts for slacking, cooking the books, mm -hmm. not doing what they were supposed to do. What do you make of that? You know, every district, uh, every community thinks it won't happen to them. And I, I know Parkland was no different. We thought we lived in a safe community. These kinds of uh, attacks wouldn't happen at our school. We're living proof that it, it can and, and might happen in your, in your district, in your school. What so is it going to take for these people who are in power to make those changes. I think it's, it. gonna, it's going to take the ability for the Department of Education um, to hold uh, superintendents and school boards accountable for making the changes. To punish them if, or somehow sanction them if they do not make the changes they're required to make. One of the things we talked about on the MSD Commission was sanctioning superintendents and school boards. Withholding pay was an right. idea. Uh, I know that's been called draconian in Tallahassee, but if you can't get a school board or a superintendent to move to action when lives are at stake, I don't know what else you do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Debbie, uh, one of the things that you both did, Ryan particularly, as Glenna mentioned, was the Florida legislature, which had been averse to changing any gun laws for 20 years, finally said you have to be 21 to buy a gun and then uh, a few other measures. Now, a new bill was introduced this year with endorsed by the state Senate president of Galvano uh, to close the gun show loophole so that private sales, individual sales, there had to be a background check, but that bill is now stalled up there in Tallahassee. It has, and that's unfortunate because it it really needs to move forward. There are people, everybody, we need to be sure that people who are, are purchasing guns um, should be purchasing guns when we were in Tallahassee. Legally. Legally, right. We were in um, Washington. They were telling us that the red flag laws, they're working, and they were giving us statistics about right. how many people they have um, started to federally prosecute if they try to purchase guns when they are under um, the red flag protection law. So we have to realize that we can 
we can uphold the Second Amendment and still keep people safe. And there are ways to do it. And we have to stop hiding behind the fact that everybody should own a gun. That's not true. Everybody shouldn't own a gun. People that shouldn't should should be um, flagged and we should be keeping them. Right. One of those laws were uh, is having teachers the ability if they want to have guns in the classroom and that was very controversial and then the whole guardian program mm -hmm. with law enforcement. You're now a guardian. You went through the training, honorary, right? Honorary guardian. Oh, an honorary yeah. guardian. Yeah. And you're, you, uh, Ryan, are participating this week in a really interesting program. The Secret Service is coming down and I think there's, I want you to explain yeah. like what that program is and why it's kind of under the radar. This is not something that we've seen very publicly. Yeah, so about. one of the things that I learned early on in this after the tragedy was that the Secret Service has been studying school, targeted school violence for years since Columbine. And they have done research to apply the techniques they use to protect the president and the first lady and, the and, and elected leaders. Those same techniques can work to protect our schools. Mm -hmm. And so can, can you give an example like So this? it's called okay. behavioral threat assessment. Oh. And Governor DeSantis has signed an executive order in the state of Florida to put a behavioral threat assessment strategy together, comprehensive mm. across the state. All state agencies are are trained, all new law enforcement and, and recertifying law enforcement officers in the state of Florida will be trained on behavioral threat assessment. Mm. And if we adopt that in our schools, we will be able to identify potential threats before they come yeah. can, to school to I do just their attack. Can I follow up on that? W give me the difference in a headline between what is the difference between behavioral threat assessment and what we would call in a sort of a pejorative profiling? Yeah, so what the Secret Service w w will tell you is there is no profile. There are uh, behaviors that are concerning. And those behaviors in aggregate can be used to help identify uh, a student in distress. Yeah. When we identify that student in distress, the goal is not to introduce them to law enforcement or the criminal justice system. The, the goal should be to get them the help they need. And so that's what yeah. we're, we're out talking about. And we'll have about 1,000 uh, law enforcement and school officials from all over South Florida attending uh, this event this week. Yeah, sounds like that when sounds pretty I flew LL for the first time, mm -hmm. yeah. they do that very kind of behavioral mm -hmm. stress test uh, yeah. to right. you. In the 15 minutes we have left, I just simply want, <laughs> want, want to ask you, <laughs> hold on, um, the trial for Nicholas Cruz is scheduled for sometime this summer. Uh, there's an offer obviously for life imprisonment without a chance of parole if he should, uh, you know, plead, I mean he would plead guilty if the state attorney would accept it, Mike Satz doesn't want to. Should that trial go forward? Yes. Okay, and Ryan, what do you think? I, I think we need to make this as speedy as possible. It's, it's clear what happened. Sure. And I don't, as a father, uh, I don't understand what, what takes our criminal justice system so long to process something like this, so. It's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, you're Great right. Great to have you in. Thank you so much for being Thank here. You Thank you for coming in, we sure appreciate it. The day they drove old Dixie down was this week at the Broward County Commission, where we saw the latest support for changing the name of this cross-county highway that does connote an old racist South. Hellendale Beach of the city there supported changing the name Dixie Highway, so has the Miami-Dade County Commission, but some business owners and residents 
who live along South, uh, well, South Dixie, West Dixie, North Dixie, say the change in the name would be costly, time-consuming, and inconvenient. Here to talk about it is Broward Mayor Dale Holness, who brought up the name change for discussion at this week's County Commission meeting. Also with us, Sabrina Javiana. She is the Vice Mayor of Hellendale Beach. She introduced the resolution to request the name change, and it was approved last month. And for some historical context, we are so glad to welcome Dr. Paul George, Professor of History at Miami-Dade College, historian to Miami History Museum, and a renowned expert in South Florida history, all kinds of history to all of you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Great to have you all here. Thank we will you. get yes. that historical perspective in just a minute. Uh, just in a little history research of my own, Mayor, uh, Dixie Highway has been around since 1915. and. Um, you know, Dixie in the African-American experience does, you think of, and even in the white experience, Jim Crow time, uh, slavery. Mm -hmm. But why now? Why, what happened that 2000, 2020 is the time when Dixie gets a look? Well, I, I didn't lead the effort on this, I must say. I'm, I'm, I'm following uh, in the footsteps of uh, uh, Miami-Dade County, uh, the Commissioner Dennis Moss, and, and, and our young, uh, Vice Mayor of Hollandale, uh, Sabrina uh, Haviana. She brought it to her commission and asked that Broward County uh, lead the effort to change the name. Uh, however, it is actually in the city's hands to do that right. name change effort. But what is it about Dixie Highway that is so offensive to you as a African-American man, as a black man, and as an American citizen that the name needs to change? So the, the discussion, by the way, was pretty much uh, unanimous amongst the members of the county commission mm -hmm. that the name should be changed. Right. So it's not just me. Uh, but when you think of Dixie, from a black perspective, you think of the enslavement of people, the brutal treatment of, of people, uh, lynching. Uh, you talk about Jim Crow and, and pretty much an apartheid system that existed. Mm -hmm. And in many instances, that was the dividing line between some communities. Yeah, we, uh, we were at the Miami-Dade Commission when Commissioner Moss did bring it up. And yes. what was so interesting was uh, on the dais, Dixie Highway actually goes through most of the commission districts in Miami-Dade. And on the dais in particular, Commissioner Rebecca Sosa, Cuban heritage who lives in Miami, said, you just taught me something. Sabrina, why don't, in our multicultural experience, why is that such a surprise to people, do you think? Well, not as an African-American person, but also as an Asian-American woman, I do feel that the name Dixie Highway is offensive, and I learned a lot of it from my residents. Uh, one of my residents, uh, our Hollandale historian, Mr. Deacon Hubert Jackson, he would tell me stories of working east of Dixie Highway and then having, coming, having to come back after sunrise, uh, sunset to west of Dixie Highway where he lived because people of color um, you know, were subject to strict time, uh, time rules in the city. Mm. And it's just a painful memory of having to you know, only live in half of the city that you feel really proud to be mm. as your hometown. And so that was a really painful memory for me. Um, and he, he's an older man, but as a younger person, I can resonate with that. And it's hard to offer new services to our residents who still, who still feel distressful of, of the city and how it's treated minorities. So to me, this is uh, one step of the healing process. Yeah. Dr. Paul George, give us a little history here. Uh, Carl Fisher created right. this highway. 
what year was that and why did he do it? Well, Michael, it's, it's a long convoluted process. There's, uh, there's the East Dixie Highway, there's the West Dixie Highway, there's a the Central Dixie Highway. Right. They all begin in the Midwest and Upper Midwest and they just kind of come through Kentucky, Tennessee, George, ultimately down to Miami. Fisher was this man in motion at all times, a preeminent developer of Miami Beach in the early right. days. And uh, he had created by putting together various roadways, the Lincoln Highway, he idolized Abraham Lincoln from the East, East Coast West. to the West Coast. Right. So now he wants to do something from the Midwest to Miami where he has a lot of investment. And so he pushes hard for this and he's just a man of action. He can get it done. And um, he begins to go over the route. They created Dixie Highway Association. And by 1915, in fact, the month that Broward County was created officially, October 1915, he enters Miami on today's Northeast 2nd Avenue. It's part of a cavalcade. And that's the West Dixie Highway that he's mm -hmm. coming in on. It wasn't completed to the late 1920s, but this is some of the early legs of the highway. What he wants to do is open Miami to the world because to promote the place. Mm -hmm. And thus this and highway. And to sell property. And, and to sell property and his yeah. developments and his yeah. hotels and what have you. Right, right. So where does Dixie come from? Well, where did he, why Dixie? Dixie was an affectionate word that Southerners, maybe even others, used to refer to the South. There was this whole renaissance of a romantic image of the South that began right. to appear with Jim Crow in the 1890s, a movie, The Birth of a Nation, The Klansman, all that stuff by the early 1900s. And so Dixie, AKA the Southland, what many people called it, becomes this affectionate term. Maybe it came from the Mason-Dixon line. Who knows? Uh, that is the area below that would be the yeah. South, the area right. above that would be in the North. Yeah. Well, the song Dixie, I've done my little research, I guess, <laughs> was written in 1857. It was a popular song. Even Abraham Lincoln, I have read, praised it. He said, boy, that's a very nice tune. It's very mm -hmm. popular. But uh, Mayor Holness, I guess the, the connotations of away in Dixieland, old times there are not forgotten. These lyrics became the de facto uh, hymn of the South, of, of the You're, Confederacy. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Who, whose, whose mission was to maintain slavery and maintain right. that oppressive treatment of fellow humans. Uh, right. so, so understand the trauma that folks who are black feels when you think of that Dixie being associated with the past treatment and, and, and the legacy lives on because even today you look at unemployment numbers in Broward County. The black community is three, four, five times higher. Uh, when you look at the incarceration rate, 16% of the population in the state of Florida are black, 33% of those in jail, 75% of the juveniles in Broward County but, that but are arrested are blacks. Excuse me, there are wider remedies which you are advocating Correct. to address all of those, yes. but just to look strictly at this name, uh, Sabrina, uh, are you ready to rename Dixie Highway? I live close to Hellendale Beach, we drive through it every day, uh, and I drive on West Dixie Highway. Mm -hmm. What would you name it? What would be your choice? So I think it's also interesting, uh, we have so many names that have dual names, A1A, US1, they all have numerous names, but right. A name I would love to see um, is Mr. Willie George Allen, who was one of the first black attorneys in the state of Florida and also right. led uh, the first lawsuit to desegregate Broward County Public Schools, which eventually led to success. Right. And he died only a few weeks ago. In, uh, in November. Last year. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it, worth it to say that in Hollywood, not too long ago, maybe less than two years ago, three street names for Confederate generals were renamed for just mm -hmm. this reason. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. George, I'm just going to throw something out at you here. <laughs> so um, in talking about Fisher and Carl Fisher mm -hmm. and uh, 
Fisher Island is named for right, Carl uh -huh. Fisher, it is. who had deed restrictions when he was developing that Jewish people couldn't live or buy his land. Should we be renaming Fisher as well in the context of sensitivities to all the groups who live in South Florida? Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it involves a whole bunch of branding changes and what have you, but it should be yeah. considered perhaps. Uh, he bought the island from D.A. Dorsey, the first black millionaire in Miami, hmm. for an undisclosed sum of money in 1919. So an African-American actually owned the island before Carl Fisher bought it. Dorsey yeah. Island. Dorsey Island, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And, and Dale, just very briefly, 15 seconds, to anybody who would say, it would just inconvenience me, I don't want to change, you know, the name and change all my credit cards and everything, and, you know, what do you say to a businessman or a resident who lives on a Dixie Highway? So for me, the, 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 the dichotomy of our history, the, 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 the contrast uh, is there. And some people say, we don't want to change history. We want to rewrite re 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 history. So for me, whether it be Willie George Allen or George Allen, Dixie Highway or Harriet Tubman, Dixie Highway, yeah. because folks ought to come in the future and say, hey, here is the two things that happen within our society. One group fighting for liberation and freedom and hum uh, for humanity, and one wanted to suppress it. And here it is right here. Well, a good point on which to end this discussion, which will go on, and we will see what all your municipalities do. You've already taken an action, and Thanks you so soon much. will. Pleasure. Thank Pleasure you. Pleasure being here. Thank, Thank you. Oh, my goodness. So many big <laughs> stories in the news this week. We want to take a closer, more analytical look at just a few of them, the ones that really matter, with our Powerhouse Roundtable. And as always, we have a great one for you, so introductions are in order first. David Smiley is a veteran reporter for the Miami Herald, now covering the political beat and campaign 2020. Pam Keith is a labor lawyer and U.S. Navy veteran. Last year, she ran for Congress as a Democrat in the 18th Congressional District. Mary Lee Cancio is an attorney with her own firm in Miami and, as always, a very influential voice in the Republican Party locally and nationally. And it's so great to have everybody here. Thank you. Sunday. Welcome. Good Thank to you. see you. Thank you for driving down from, you know, the 18th Little Congressional District. <laughs> the 18th District, yeah. Uh, well, here we are uh, watching closely what happens with presidential politics and Mara Lee, here we've got uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, is the the front runner and he is the guy to beat and he's, it appears he will do well in Nevada. And then you've got David Smiley interviewing all the members of Congress from South that Florida. That was interesting. And they say, yeah. never Bernie, we don't support him. I don't think that he's establishment candidate for the Democratic Party. I mean, he's someone that after every four years he switches back to independent and then he switches to Democrat to run for the nomination. So we saw for years ago how uh, the establishment was with Hillary Clinton and they sort of tried to help her in some ways by even passing debate questions to her. And we're seeing the same people that didn't like him then to try to help someone else. Yeah. Originally it was going to be well, you the, know, the issue, Vice President Biden, but yeah. now we're seeing how Bloomberg is getting a lot of the support. Yeah, well, the issue obviously uh, Pam for Bernie Sanders is that for Floridians who generally, you know, are more moderate in their politics, including Democrats, he's just too far to the left. I just think that we have a really twisted way of talking about what is left and what is right in our country. And we all have right, a tradition well, Medicare of... Medicare for yeah. all is, uh, I don't know, I don't want to 
categorize it as left, but I mean, it is a... Maybe socialist? A radical... <laughs> Self-describe, self we're not tagging right. him. He calls himself a democratic socialist. socialist. And right. that, that word is really problematic in places like South Florida. Right, yeah. and I yeah. totally understand that because when Bernie is talking about de democratic socialism, he's talking about what we have in Denmark or Finland or Canada. And of course, we have an entire machine that tries to say, oh, it's exactly like it's in Venezuela. But the lesson of Venezuela is not just their political system. It was despots, authoritarians, right. and corrupt individuals. Right. And quite frankly, the only thing the United States has in common with Venezuela is a person in leadership who wants to be an authoritarian, a despot, and a person that is totally corrupt. The bottom line is we see all over the world democratic socialism, that is policy that focuses on helping the broadest number of people work. It's a demonization of the term that's taken over our politics, and I think we need to address that. I, I want to bring up something that um, we're starting to see in Iowa and New Hampshire, where we were in the past couple of weeks, and David, there is, um, and the events that Bernie Sanders and all the candidates hold events, and his events are packed with easily triple or quadruple the number of people that we mm -hmm. see at the other events. They're held in arenas. He fills arenas. And I'm thinking back four years ago to then-candidate Donald Trump filling places with people who are enthusiastic and passionate and that energy we see right now with Bernie Sanders that kind of energy mm -hmm. yeah. alone we, we were just talking about this uh, backstage yeah. uh, and in a multi-way field still in a muddy uh, primary for yeah. the Democrats Bernie Sanders has a very solid base of support that is going to give him money and fuel him throughout this process and where a couple months ago I was asking people can Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren coexist uh, without cannibalizing the the farther uh, left side of the primary now we start to ask the question can Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and Joe Biden yeah. and Michael Bloomberg all right. exist without doing that to the moderate part of the party yeah. exactly you know there was a poll and I don't know that it's a famous poll the St. Pete poll that came out on Friday and it shows in Florida that uh, Mike Bloomberg is at 27%, Joe Biden is at 26%. Now, I don't know that I would bet next month's mortgage payment, you know, on the accuracy, <laughs> but there has been a lot of movement Very here. So. And I guess if you spent, I don't know how many millions, you know, Mr. Bloomberg has spent so far, it could be in Florida, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 million. I mean, he's spent a huge he's amount of money. spent a lot of money. Of money. I, I, that was a robo-poll um, of about 1,200 uh, voters, so yeah. I'm always a little bit wary yeah. of automated calls yes. as opposed to live calls. Right. But those numbers do uh, yeah. sound plausible. I, I do think uh, with the polling, there's still a very large undecided group, and the, those numbers of support are, I think, kind of soft. So things are very much in the air, but I think what we're seeing right now, which is good for the political reporters and pundits, <laughs> uh, is that Florida looks like it is going to matter in this process. Yes. Yes. We yes. matter. We you matter. Really matter. <laughs> Mary Lee, what, uh, we were talking a little bit earlier with some of our other guests. You know, you see the president start the tweet machine and start targeting some of the candidates, especially Mike Bloomberg, that he obviously, <laughs> obviously perceives as a threat. But for Amy Klobuchar, who, you know, is a really solid candidate with creds, years of creds, sort of a bipartisan operator, you don't see the president tweeting about Amy Klobuchar. Does that mean she well, doesn't I'll, think I'll, she's threatening as I'll, a candidate? I'll yeah. tell you something. In my little family that we have a little a WhatsApp group, one of my sisters likes her and thinks that she would be a unifying factor that she could vote for her. My sister is one of those that really 
does not like, uh, you know, the, the way that the president acts or tweets or talks. And she, would, she said this week, and I said, but would you vote for her? She never answered that, but I think she might because I believe that Amy Klobuchar doesn't have the name, doesn't have the money, but she's surviving in this field, and I think she has yeah. a good chance. So she's got a good know. chance in so, uh, Nevada. So what is, what is with yeah. the lack of tweets on his behalf? Does he, he obviously does not think of her as a threat yet, or has nothing to tweet about. Exactly. It's I, tough. I, I, I cannot get into his head. <laughs> well, Bloomberg, Bloomberg got under the president's skin, yes. I guess, on the Fox station in Washington, where the president watches uh, the Fox Morning News program. Uh, uh, Bloomberg bought ads that directly spoke to the president, and it really irritated him. That's when he really started tweeting uh, about Bloomberg. I think what you're going to see is that that's going to escalate. It's, it's to Mike Bloomberg's advantage to make it look like it's a two-man race. And to yeah. a certain extent, Bloomberg spends all of his energy and a lot of his money attacking Donald Trump, where everybody else is kind of trying to distinguish themselves from the other candidates in the nomination process. So there's a there's a tactical uh, strategy behind focusing right. his energy and quite frankly that's part of what's elevating Bloomberg in people's eyes is because they like seeing punches thrown right. across the bow to the yeah. other side yeah. they like that they're responding to and, that and but and I think in the Bloomberg, media, yeah. I'm sorry we in the media we relish it too even yeah. though we, <laughs> we, say, we say oh don't yeah. act that way and the other side we're saying give Wait, me well, give well, me no, that no, no, conflict. Which, what no, say? I think that if Bloomberg is a nominee I don't think Bernie Sanders supporters are going to be too happy or would support the nominee for the Democratic Party. And, and I'm not going to disagree with Mari Lee. I think she's right. There is a vulnerability there that some of the people who are very passionate about Bernie will not uh, vote for a Bloomberg. Uh, but just like there is the risk that P if Bernie's a nominee, there are people who are centrists who just, you know, can't go there. And the, and the question is, can people like me get out there and make the case that this is no longer about who the nominee is? This is about who the country is. Are we going to continue to be a constitutional republic governed by the rule of law and if you believe in that then you're going to vote for whoever the nominee is. Let's we are back with a rocking roundtable with Mary Lee Kencio and Pam Keith and David Smiley. I want to talk about that really interesting piece you had in the Herald where you asked the congressional delegation of South Florida if Bernie Sanders is the candidate can you get behind the Democratic candidate and what did you get? Stairs? Well, well actually <laughs> it was my uh, colleague at the McClatchy DC Bureau Alex uh, Doherty who asked the questions Thank I, you know, thankfully I didn't have to get the uh, the knife stairs. <laughs> but uh, uh, the the delegation did not say we will never support Bernie. Uh, it, they they just made clear that they are not ready uh, and do do not want to support him. Uh, but if you look at South Florida's delegation, there's Donna Shalala who is in the Clinton cabinet. Uh, there is Debbie Wasserman Schultz who ran the DNC when it was uh, you know stacking the deck against Bernie. Um, and in Miami, uh, the term democratic socialist is sort of a, a death knell, or at least that's the fear among the delegation. But they made clear that, that uh, they, they believe he is not going to be the nominee, and they do not want him to be the nominee, and they will work and do whatever they can to make sure that he is not. But for Frederica Wilson, Congresswoman oh, Wilson, yes, I yes, believe, said you. she would endorse the candidate. Frederica Wilson, yeah. the, the one member uh, of the delegation who has zero fear whatsoever of being primaried uh, or, <laughs> uh, or losing her seat, is, is uh, okay with saying that she would support Bernie. Yeah. 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 Interesting. All right, let's change the focus, if we can, just a bit. We just had, I thought, a really meaningful conversation with uh, uh, Ryan Petty and Debbie Hickson here about MSD and um, Pam uh, it seems to me one thing we didn't mention was 
that for all the, the good that the president had all these parents in this week uh, and talked about school safety, which is a very good thing, designing schools that are safer. Uh, shortly after the massacre, after the shootings, he said he would support universal background checks. I'm mm -hmm. for it. And, and sent a signal, as it were, it seemed, to Washington. And then he's done, he's backed up. He's not supporting that right. now. I mean, that's a... And that's not just the president. That's the GOP orthodoxy that we see on the Hill. Largely, that is because of the ties to the NRA and other program organizations. I think the reality is that um, the people who support uh, gun rights believe that to give a little is, is yeah. sort of opening a Pandora's box of some kind. And so they're unwilling to, to tolerate any kind of movement to, to make our gun purchasing process a little bit safer. That's going to be, in my opinion, a, a political black hole for them, as we have seen. Moms Demand and Every Town USA, right. these organizations that have popped up to support uh, pro gun legislation Bloomberg candidates. Organizations. Excellent yeah. point. He funded a great deal of that. Right. Um, those are not only raising large amounts of money, they're not only running a lot of strong candidates, but they are winning, and they are winning all over the place. So the stranglehold of the NRA, which still to some extent exists yeah. in Tallahassee, yeah. is all but dissipated yeah. in Marian, DC. Marion Hammer, who's run the NRA in Florida for what, the last 25 years, is just a huge, powerful force there. When, when I ran for state senator in 2018 as a Republican, one of the reasons that I ran was because the incumbent senator for that district had voted against the Parkland law. And I signed up for Moms Demand. Actually, I was one of the candidates that mm -hmm. would support right. common sense legislation. And I thought that the Parkland bill that was signed by Governor Rick Scott under a Republican Senate leadership that was bipartisan brought the most comprehensive gun reform that some of my friends don't agree with, but I thought that when both sides disagreed, that's a good thing. The three-day waiting period, raising the age to 21 to own uh, a gun, and also um, the red flag laws, red which flag we were laws. talking with uh, Ryan Petty before, that um, the red flag laws had saved hundreds of lives. I think the I think controversy with that, if I remember correctly, David, help me on this one, was that some of the Democrats in the state house did not think it went far enough. Right, right, right. Yeah, correct. Was, that was that was yeah. that was their excuse, but, and that's the point. A little, it's better than nothing, in my opinion. And yeah, I every, think that yeah. those steps were good, positive steps. And red flag laws are very controversial. We don't talk enough about them, but they do work when you take the gun of right. someone that is mentally disturbed. And there was a very good story. Excuse me, this week that recounted that in Florida in the last year, I think there were 3,700 cases where law enforcement went to a judge uh, on behalf of a family member uh, and said, you, we, we need to have the gun taken away from this person because they're a danger to themselves or others. And those weapons were taken away. So red flag laws seem to be working. Yeah. We see these movements come like floods uh, politically and after Parkland, uh, what you saw was that flood coming and, and sort of topping the levees and what you got was red flag laws and you raised the minimum age of purchasing some firearms and banning bump Three stocks. Three day winning period. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, are we going to see much more in the state of Florida? The signs are that that sort of receded and yeah. we're kind of at a new normal. Right, because I don't want anyone to take my guns and I've said that before. I have a concealed weapons permit. I like to go shooting and I believe in the Second Amendment. So, you know, there is a line that it's drawn here, whether you believe in the Second Amendment or not. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a really rock and round table and we want to talk now about 
the news business and newspapers because this week McClatchy, which owns the Miami Herald and 29 other papers, said it was filing, it is filing for bankruptcy and uh, maybe this was inevitable. And David, I don't mean to put you in a uh, uncomfortable position, but you are a Miami Herald reporter. So just tell us what was the mood in the newsroom? I mean, this didn't come as a surprise. This, right. you know, you knew that McClatchy, the Herald, uh, had huge debts, pension obligations, something had to give. And this week, I mean, it is the ownership of a newspaper brand, which has been around for, what, 150 years. Right. Yeah, this has been coming. Um, so definitely it was a, a bad day at the Miami Herald. Uh, but, you know, important to note, the Miami Herald is not uh, going away. It's no. a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, so it is not liquidation. It is a debt restructuring for our parent company. Um, and I think the mood is determination. We're, we very quickly after a company meeting, um, a couple of company meetings, got back to doing our jobs. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna keep doing our jobs and we're gonna keep trying to be as effective as we can with the staff that we have. Um, and well, and we, will, we will do it until they you know, lock and bar the doors. <laughs> you know, Michael, at the importance of the newspaper, we were talking before during the break about the different investigations that the Herald has mm -hmm. recently discovered, whether it was Epstein or now with the Department of uh, Domestic Violence, a $7 million scandal. Yeah, yeah. If it wasn't for the local uh, journalists and journalism, we wouldn't know about that. And, you know, we have you know, now we have Twitter, which is so dangerous. You know, I think the people in the newspapers, when they research a story, investigate, uh, it's very important. But I'm one of those persons that signs up to the New York Times and Miami Herald uh, online only. I don't like the wasted <coughs> paper. That's, that's actually, um, as, a, as an objective observer, reading the articles about it, McClatchy is framing this as a, a positive move toward a digital business model mm -hmm. and Pam I will say we in the news business are all moving toward a right. digital model and that's very difficult to do when so much online is free right. how to monetize a digital news business mm -hmm. to be able to do the job like those investigations like what David right. does and I you know I don't know that I have the answer to that but I am a person who does get the majority of my information online mm -hmm. or in a digital platform mm -hmm. and in that way I can just pop on the the story that I want to read and I only read that story that means the advertising dollars in the print that are poured into the print version are just wasted on me and so the 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 economic model of making a, a newspaper viable goes away so then you have to get more like a subscription service you pay to get to actually read the stories. There may be some additional evolutions, um, and we may actually seriously have to look at federal and state funding of nonpartisan uh, journalism held to the highest uh, standards of journalistic yeah. ethics so that we keep getting a, we continue to have a free and independent press that informs the people through uh, the lens of journalistic ethics and high standards. How do you think, David, real quickly, the administration would look at that idea? The administration of the, of the Trump newspaper? Oh, the Trump Oh, <laughs> well, uh, we know that, yeah. that McClatchy yeah. sought uh, congressional help to, um, to, to On the downplay pensions. the importance of its pension payments right. and couldn't get it and uh, did not get support from the administration. So I doubt they'd support it much at all. Um, I think uh, for local communities and local news, um, yeah. what we previously knew as subscriptions, I think we need to look at now as a sort of crowdfund amongst the community. Yeah. You know? Also, I want to point out that the, the Sun Sentinel 
which won a Pulitzer last year, which does phenomenal work, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, it is under a cloud because some uh, a hedge fund called Global uh, Alden Global uh, Capital is now the uh, in control of the Tribune company, and they are even more brutal in the way they treat newspapers than uh, Chatham uh, management assets, asset management. So The hedge fund that is uh, poised to take uh, controlling ownership of McClash. People, support exactly. local news. Support local yeah. news. Great. Notes from the road this week and the cold and snowy beginning of the presidential campaign trail. One of the takeaways for weeks of following the candidates and talking to voters, you really don't need polls or pundits to tell you who has the attention and the momentum. That becomes plainly obvious from things like lawn signs in neighborhoods or lack thereof, or whether voters at candidates' events say they are still deciding, or the insane frenzy of those young crowds at Bernie Sanders' concert rallies. The enthusiasm factor is a lesson we learned in 2016 when then-candidate Donald Trump was getting all the attention. That said, there is a long way to go for the Democrats in choosing a nominee, Nevada, South Carolina, the 14 Super Tuesday states, and then the primary right here in Florida next month. And while our primary date is March 17th, the reality is the fight for Florida is underway right now. Voters who requested and received absentee ballots, they're already weighing in even before the candidates are on the ground making their cases here except Mike Bloomberg, whose strategy in Florida is well underway, and of course that of Donald Trump. Unlike Iowa and New Hampshire, Florida's primaries are closed, so as you know, only registered Democrats may vote to choose the party nominee. And since a third of Florida voters are NPA, no registered party affiliation, that means a lot of people who may want to be part of that process may not be. In Iowa and New Hampshire in the past few weeks, we did meet a significant number of registered Republicans and independents supporting one or two of the more moderate Democratic candidates who were switching parties right there during the process to be able to cast that vote. If that's something that interests you, there is actually still time to make that happen. Florida's deadline to register or change party affiliation, either Democratic or Republican, is this Tuesday. That's February 18th. As a matter of fact, Tuesday is my birthday. And a most <laughs> meaningful gift would be to know that someone who has not yet participated in the most important process in the state and in this country takes the step and regist registers to vote. So if that's you and you do that, let us know. And thanks.